Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to this week's episode of Natural MD Radio. This is Dr. Aviva Ram, and today we're talking about protecting your baby's microbiome right from the start, which is a topic I know is so close at heart to so many of you. In fact, when I asked on my Facebook page who was interested in having me do a podcast on this topic, I think close to 600 women responded. So many of you responded with concerns because you'd had a cesarean, and now your child is struggling with eczema or asthma or allergies. So today we're going to talk about kind of going a little bit upstream from that, but I will give you information on what you can do if your child is a little bit older and you're trying to reverse some of those problems. But today let's talk about what to do as far upstream as we can get, which is during pregnancy. Our intestinal ecology is made of an estimated 100 trillion diverse microorganisms. These are collectively called the microbiome. To give you perspective on the volume this number represents, your microbiome weighs more than two pounds or a kilogram, which is about the weight of your brain. These organisms have a profound impact on so many important physiologic aspects and important aspects of our development and our health including nutrient absorption, detoxification, the health of your gut lining, even your moods, your appetite, your food cravings, how many calories and nutrients you extract from your food, your mental clarity and mental function, and when out of balance can lead to inflammation, neuroinflammation, obesity and diabetes, hormonal problems, anxiety, depression, and something we commonly call brain fog or difficulty with thinking, focus, and concentration. Healthy forms of microorganisms prevent something called leaky gut. The development of the adult microbiome actually begins at birth, and to some extent, the influences on the health of the microbiome from birth to age two set the potential for lifetime health. From the time of birth, the microbiome influences the development of our immune system, and when it's disrupted, we run the risk of all manner of inflammatory and allergic conditions developing sooner or later, including allergies, food intolerances, eczema, asthma, and even autoimmune diseases, which are on the rise, including in kids. Overweight, obesity, and diabetes, also significantly on the rise in kids, can also be the consequence of faulty microbial colonization. Proper microbial colonization by vaginal birth and breastfeeding set the tone through a complex network of immune and neurologic developments for how well we're able to respond to stress, which is absolutely fascinating. In other words, the health of your microbiome from your earliest life has a role in how well you respond to stress and whether you're more likely to find yourself an anxious, depressed teenager or adult, and whether you develop intrinsic resilience to stress. Further, once this foundation is set, it isn't something you can change retroactively, which sheds light on the importance of understanding the factors that impede healthy microbiome development and avoiding those whenever possible, both during pregnancy and after birth for mom and baby. The biggest risk factors that can interfere with the health of the microbiome and thus all these developmental aspects 
are dysbiosis, which is the overgrowth of potentially harmful bacteria, yeasts, and other organisms, or lack of ample amounts of the healthy ones, the good guys. Antibiotic exposure of mom during pregnancy, labor, or while breastfeeding. Cesarean birth. Lack of breastfeeding for at least the first four months of life, and ideally the first year. And antibiotics given to baby in the first two years of life. Now, given that women in the United States have a one in three chance of a cesarean section, and children two and under are likely to have at least two courses of antibiotics, statistically, it's likely that your baby will take a hit to his or her microbiome somewhere in those first precious years of life. So in today's podcast, we're going to focus on those exposures and things you can do to protect your baby during pregnancy and birth. To learn more about avoiding antibiotic overuse and over-medication of other pharmaceuticals that can damage the microbiome, and how to heal and restore your child's important gut environment, please see my children's health programs at www.healthiestkids.com. Over there, you'll find two programs, one called Healthy All Year, which is about overall building children to have healthy immunity and stress resilience as well, and another course called The Allergy Epidemic, which is helping you to identify, heal, and reverse the causes or the root causes, as I call them, of allergies, eczema, asthma, and chronic autoimmune conditions in kids. So again, that's www.healthiestkids.com. Today, we're going to focus on pregnancy and birth, but if you have older children who are already struggling, kids over two, or even baby six months and up, and you're now wanting to reverse damages that have occurred, that's where you want to go. Now, before I jump in further, I really want to emphasize that this podcast and all of my work is absolutely not about judging the type of birth you had. It's not about mom judging or mom shaming. It's simply about the fact that microbiome disruption in early life is a setup or a potential setup for a host of problems that I know you want to avoid for your babies and kids. If you've had an antibiotic, whether it was needed or unnecessarily prescribed, either way, if you had a cesarean, necessary or not, that is not the issue for this podcast. You made the best choice you could at the time. This is absolutely not about that. This is simply about reviewing what I can help you with to help your baby's microbiome right now, and if you are pregnant, to prevent these damages, and if you plan to have children in the future, to know what you can do right from the start. So what is a mom to do? Let's first talk about protecting baby before birth. Enough of a body of research demonstrates that moms receiving a probiotic in the third trimester have babies with lower rates of atopic conditions. Atopy is asthma, allergies, and eczema. And the data with probiotics in third trimester for mom shows particular benefit for eczema and allergies in your baby, particularly in the event of a cesarean, so much to the point that I now recommend all pregnant women take a probiotic at least through the third trimester of pregnancy. However, further data shows that disruptions in mom's vaginal flora may play a role in preventing preterm birth, which occurs usually prior to third trimester, and also urinary tract infections and group B strep, both of which are risk factors for not only preterm birth, but also the need for antibiotics in pregnancy and labor, which then get through to baby and give baby a really early antibiotic exposure. Therefore, in my own practice, my medical practice, and all my teaching, 
I now consider it optimal standard of care to start women on a probiotic as soon as they realize they're pregnant and continue it throughout pregnancy and even well into breastfeeding. The organisms in studies that have found to be most protective for mom and baby are a wide variety of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium species, and those are also found to be uh, beneficial for the prevention of groupie strep and urinary tract infection. But in addition, there are two particular species of lactobacillus that have been found to be especially helpful, and that's lactobacillus ruteri and lactobacillus rhamnosus. A lot of probiotics contain a wide variety of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium species, which is great, but not all of them carry the lactobacillus ruteri and rhamnosus. So I often suggest that women take a separate probiotic, including those as well, and either take both every day or alternate one day between the more generalized and one day with the ruteri and rhamnosus species. The dose for adults is anywhere between 15 and 50 billion colony-forming units daily, and CFUs is the abbreviation for colony-forming units, and it's the measure that you'll find on a bottle of probiotics. Now, I usually recommend starting low and going slow because not everyone tolerates a probiotic right away. Sometimes it can cause a little bit of digestive rumbling and discomfort. And of course, I always recommend talking with your midwife or family doctor or OB, whoever's helping with your pregnancy. But, you know, the truth is you're in the driver's seat. You're the one taking care of your baby. And all the data on probiotics and pregnancy show that they are absolutely safe. And the fact is your midwife, family doctor, or OB might not know any of this information. It is just not taught in medical schools, in residencies, in midwifery training programs, but the scientific literature is out there. It's widely available. Unfortunately, we're just not usually taught prevention. We're more taught about giving the antibiotics for treatment, doing the interventions, not forestalling the problems by doing really important nutritional things, as, as I call it, far upstream. Now, Sometimes it is necessary to take an antibiotic in pregnancy. You just get that urinary tract infection. You develop an unexpected infection of another sort. As woman, one woman wrote into me on Facebook, she had an ear infection in pregnancy. She really had to take an antibiotic. Or if you do have a urinary tract infection in pregnancy, that is an appropriate time to take an antibiotic. It's really helpful to prevent kidney infections, which can be really damaging in pregnancy. And even as I mentioned, urinary tract infections cause pre- can cause preterm labor. So it, it's often the safest thing to do. In that case, you know, you can't beat yourself up. We all have to, you know, understand the risks, but then real life happens. If you do get put on an antibiotic, in that case, start a probiotic along with the antibiotic and stay on the probiotic for the remainder of your pregnancy. Look, We can only do our best to stay free of pharmaceuticals and other exposures to our babies, but we have to remember life happens and we have to roll with it. Do your best to not beat yourself up. And remember, not every baby that has one of these exposures develops consequences. Many are just fine. Remember, the consequences of not treating a true infection are potentially much worse. Let's talk about group E strep. GBS, or group E streptococcus, is one of the trillions of organisms that normally inhabit the human intestinal tract. By migration from the intestines, it colonizes the rectum, bladder, and vaginal tracts of many women and can thus be identified in cultures of combined rectal and vaginal swab samples and also urinary samples, which is often done in the beginning of pregnancy, whereas the rectal vaginal swabs are done around 35 weeks. 
Rupee strep itself doesn't seem to play a particularly beneficial role in human health, nor when it's kept in check by healthy gut flora does it usually cause any harm. However, in a very small percentage of exposed babies, infection can cause serious illness and even death at the time of birth or shortly after. Therefore, all women who test positive in pregnancy and who meet a selection of criteria in labor receive an IV antibiotic in labor to prevent baby from developing this infection. I discussed the pros and cons of this at length in my article, Group E Strep in Pregnancy, What's a Mom to Do?, as well as controversy around this approach to giving everyone an antibiotic. In all likelihood, however, if you do test positive, you will receive the antibiotic, which is absolutely, totally appropriate. But what can you do to protect your baby? Well, for one, you can actually support the health of your gut and vaginal microbiome during pregnancy, thus preventing GBS overgrowth. You can even start this before pregnancy, particularly if you've had a history of bacterial vaginosis, chronic yeast infections, or dysbiosis, which may make you more of a setup for the GBS overgrowth. Also, before and during pregnancy, you can eat a diet that's low in sugar, processed foods, and processed carbohydrates, for example, white flour products and baked goods. And if you suspect you're gluten intolerant, go strictly gluten-free. These steps can remove triggers that directly and indirectly through harming the gut lining and causing leaky gut harm your microbiome. You can also make sure to get about 35 grams of fiber daily from vegetables, which is about six to 10 servings of vegetables a day, or if needed through the addition of one to two tablespoons of freshly ground flaxseed added to your food or a smoothie daily, and also adding lacto-fermented veggies to your diet. It's also important to take a probiotic daily, even starting before your pregnancy, if you have some of the history of vaginal infections I mentioned or dysbiosis, and certainly starting in the first trimester. For preventing GBS, I recommend not only taking a probiotic containing the wide variety of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium strains I've mentioned, but in addition, that specially contain lactobacillus rhamnosus and L. ruteri. If you've had GBS in the past, or have a history of yeast infections, BV, or urinary tract infections, these two species are especially important. And it's interestingly been shown that giving mom lactobacillus rhamnosus, a specific strain of it, during pregnancy also reduces the incidence of atopic eczema in at-risk children during their first two years of life. So now, what are we going to do about the cesarean epidemic? and its risk factor for exposing you to antibiotics and thus baby to antibiotics, but as well as the fact that baby's not going to get exposed to the normal vaginal microbiome. It's unequivocal and even acknowledged by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists that the cesarean rate in the United States is excessive. In fact, according to a number of sources, including the World Health Organization, no nation's C-section rate should exceed 15%, yet we average 34% nationally. Numerous books and articles have been written about this problem, and a number of methods are shown to reduce the C-section rate, including maintaining a healthy low-risk pregnancy, maintaining a healthy weight, not being unnecessarily or prematurely induced for labor, and having your baby with a midwife or at least a doula present. However, given the number of women likely to have a C-section in the current obstetrics climate, and the benefits of at least third trimester use of a probiotic by mom in preventing atopic disease in her baby, I now recommend all pregnant women take a probiotic in pregnancy at least throughout the third trimester using the same species and strains that I've mentioned. 
So now let's shift our attention to protecting baby after birth. What can you do? Well, probiotics are the leading strategy that you can take to help prevent all these conditions that I've mentioned in your baby. Numerous studies, including thousands of infants treated with a probiotic starting shortly after birth and through the first six months of life, particularly babies born by C-section, show reduced likelihood of developing antibodies to common allergens, as well as preventing the risk of developing eczema. The data, in fact, is so overwhelmingly supportive for prevention that I now routinely give a probiotic to all newborns continuing through six months of life if they were born by C-section, if mom received an antibiotic for any reason during labor, so groupie strep, C-section, or other reason, or if baby needed an antibiotic at or after birth. What probiotic is best for baby? In my practice and for my friends and family, I recommend an infant probiotic by a company named Claire Labs. It's called Claire Infant. And it contains the variety of strains that have been found to be most beneficial in helping to colonize the optimal organisms needed for baby's healthy immunologic, neurologic, and metabolic development. Other companies that are often recommended include Gero, Now Foods, and Floro Udo's probiotic for babies. Now, the Claire Labs one um, is only available through practitioners, so you can get your pediatrician, family doctor, or an integrative doctor in your community to order it. Also, if you stay tuned to my weekly newsletter, which you can get by subscribing at avivaram.com, and you can maybe get the free downloadable ebook on natural remedies for children. I think it's called Herbs for Children's Health. There's no obligation to purchase anything in doing that, but you'll stay tuned to the offers that I'll be making. And one of the things that my team is in the process of doing is making my online store which is usually only available to people in my courses and my programs and my practice available to you as well. Because I have heard from so many of you how hard it is to pick products, know what products to use and get reliable products. And even sometimes it's hard to just get to the store. So we're going to be making the discount available to you. And so just stay tuned for that. And you'll, you'll hear an announcement when that comes through my weekly newsletter sometime in the next couple of weeks. When should you start giving a probiotic and how often? Studies show that starting in the first few days after birth and continuing for six months is optimal for colonization of healthy gut flora species in infants, and it's generally given daily. The two most common and effective ways to give a breastfeeding baby a probiotic are to mix the powder into a couple of tablespoons of expressed breast milk and give it to the baby through a small syringe or an eyedropper. I generally recommend putting the dropper right next to your nipple while you're nursing and letting the baby swallow the milk probiotic mix while you're nursing, but baby can also just take it directly from the dropper or syringe between nursings. Another way to give it to a breastfeeding baby is to put the dose of probiotic into a clean dish, just that particular dose that you're using for that serving. Dip your clean pinky finger into a little bit of the powder and let baby suck it off your finger and keep dipping and letting the baby suck it off until the full dose has been taken. Don't dip your finger directly into the probiotic jar or you might damage the probiotic strains. If your baby's bottle fed or um, with breast milk, you can mix it right into the bottle of breast milk. Or if your baby is taking formula, you can mix it right into the formula. It's important not to heat the probiotics. So if you're heating the milk or heating the formula, add the probiotic after the milk or formula has come down to room temperature. A number of you may be concerned, naturally I would be too, about giving any supplement to your baby. 
With over 26,000 reports of infants using probiotics in the medical literature and it being known for use in the neonatal ICU for the treatment of an intestinal problem in babies called necrotizing enterocolitis, with only an extremely small number of adverse reports in already very sick babies, probiotic use in healthy, otherwise overall healthy infants is considered quite safe. Their use isn't recommended in infants with indwelling catheters, who are immunocompromised, or if your baby is sick, premature, or has significant medical problems, work with your baby's neonatologist or pediatrician to make sure it's safe to use the probiotic. But for otherwise healthy babies who have been born by C-section or there's been an antibiotic exposure, or you just want to help support baby's immune development if you've had problems with your own microbiome, then it's a very reasonable option to use. Now, there is a new and emerging technique. It's kind of a new ancient thing, actually. Research is being done into what is being called vaginal swabbing, or what some are referring to as microbiome seeding. And it's shown promise in a small study in helping to at least partially restore the flora of babies that have been born by C-section. The procedure is basically quite simple. A sterile gauze is folded into a fan shape. It's moistened in sterile water. It's inserted into the vagina and left to colonize there for an hour. The gauze is then removed, put into a sealed bag until the baby's born. This is done, you know, when you're in early labor. And at birth, given the baby is swabbed all over the face to mimic passage through the birth canal. The leading researcher in this area is a woman named Maria Dominguez-Bello, who in 2012 enrolled seven women who delivered vaginally and 11 who had a C-section in a study. Four of the women underwent the microbial transfer, and within two minutes of birth by C-section, their baby was inoculated, as described above, swabbed all over the newborn's bodies to inoculate the skin, not just the face. The four babies who received the swabs developed skin, gut, anal and oral bacteria communities that were more like the infants of those who were born naturally compared to the ones who were born by C-section and who did not go through the procedure. Dominguez-Bello is very optimistic and she says these effects are long-lasting and her team is now working on a study looking at the long-term effects in a much larger group of babies. Most physicians, midwives, and scientists, and myself included, recommend waiting until there's more evidence available before commonly practicing vaginal seeding. And we all agree that moms should be tested for the common infections, group B strep, herpes infection, HIV, venereal diseases, you know, sexually transmitted infections, etc., before assuming that seeding is safe for every woman. Some families, however, are not waiting for conclusive evidence, and they're trying this procedure for themselves. And in the UK, United Kingdom, and in India, there are midwives who are actually implementing this. Also, not everyone is jumping onto the vaginal seating trend quite so fast. For example, French obstetrician and long-term natural birth and midwife advocate Michel Odant cautions that, for example... In his view, when birth occurred more naturally or tribally in communities and at home, where birth was undisturbed by vaginal exams or induction techniques, that not all membranes ruptured before birth and many babies were born in the call or the intact amniotic sac. So not all babies would receive inoculations from the mom's vaginal flora. However, even traditionally born babies without any vaginal exams during labor. And I can attest that as a midwife to hundreds and hundreds of births where I did not do vaginal exams routinely. There was still frequently rupture of membranes at the time of birth, enough for baby to get 
most babies do get exposure. But, you know, I think he says, let's not just jump to this so fast and assume that we can kind of replace natural birth with this inoculation technique. And maybe it's not quite as important as we think. In my opinion, the procedure is very promising. And with proper testing for infections for mom, it's likely to be very safe. But it's also important to remember that important epigenetic, metabolic, and and neurologic shifts happen as a result of vaginal birth. So I want us to be really careful that we don't just sort of say, okay, well, C-section isn't as big a deal as we thought because we can replace the vaginal flora with vaginal swapping. This technique can't be an excuse to tolerate the high rate of cesareans we're seeing. Vaginal seeding is not a compensation for missing a healthy vaginal birth. It's an important stopgap method for when cesarean sections are needed or now when they're done, even if it's accessibly, we still need something to help babies on their way as naturally as they would have if they had been born by vaginal birth. But again, this can't be a replacement for vaginal birth. One of my favorite quotes, but one of my favorite people to quote is Maya Angelou. This woman was just such a wise woman. And one of my favorite quotes is, I did then what I knew how to do. Now that I know better, I do better. I did then what I knew how to do. Now that I know better, I do better. It is so important to not blame ourselves. We have to forgive ourselves. So many moms I know, especially when I share this information, they're beating themselves up or they're reading it somewhere else and they're coming to me and they're like, Dr. Rom, I wish I knew better. Look, you are not to blame. There are social, economic, and political factors that are leading to antibiotic overuse. Same as with cesarean section overuse. As a mom, we do everything we can in the moment to make the best decisions to protect our babies. And you know what? When your baby is really, really sick or when you're in labor, it's not even the best time to make those decisions, but we're forced to a lot of times. And sometimes in retrospect, with time and clarity and sleep, we may think we would have made a different decision, but it doesn't invalidate that you made the best decision for your baby at the time. So please, no self-blame. This is not about blaming you. We also all come to the table with our own history of antibiotic use. I had antibiotics tons when I was a kid. My grandfather's first cousin was a family doctor. Every sniffle and cold, we went to him and we got another antibiotic. I was on erythromycin left and right as a kid. There's nothing I could have done to prevent that, but that had an impact on my microbiome, which may have carried over to my own kids. Now, for me, fortunately, I got on a really healthy diet when I was young and was eating a lot of lacto-fermented foods. My kids didn't have allergies and eczema, but I certainly did have terrible allergies as a kid. My brother had terrible asthma as a kid. And these are things we can't just undo in one generation. So, you know, I'm encouraging you to be really gentle with yourself. Say that Maya Angelou quote to yourself, write it down somewhere. And now that you know, you can do the things to help your baby get on the right track. If you have a next pregnancy, or if you're not pregnant yet, I wish you the best with that pregnancy. And this is something you can do. And again, if you already are having children showing any signs or symptoms of eczema, allergies, asthma, autoimmune condition, then consider heading over to healthiestkids.com and learn about my course, The Allergy Epidemic. Thank you so much for joining me today. You'll find the references that you need under this podcast and over in my blog, also with the same topic and the same information and content protecting your baby's microbiome from the start. 
and the references that you need. If you think this podcast has been helpful for you, informative, if you feel like it would be helpful for other women to hear to help protect themselves and their babies, please drop a comment over on iTunes because they love those comments. They see the number of comments and based on that, they elevate the blog. And the way for us to all make shifts in how many C-sections are being done, how many antibiotics are being doled out, and the health of our next generation is for us to use our voices. And one way you can do that is by liking this podcast, liking my blog, and dropping a comment over on iTunes so that other women, other moms, dads, and also physicians who follow me see that this information is out there and so important. Wishing you so much love and health. Thank you for joining me. you enjoyed this episode of natural md radio if you did please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog and while you're there be sure to sign up for my newsletter it's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally that's avivaram.com take care and see you next time